Let's make our way to the book of Ephesians. Um, so last week we shortly introduced the book um, and read the whole book together, which was wonderful to see some of those key themes come up and just to let the word of God speak for itself. And today um, we're not going to start with verse 1. You know how our Baptist, we Baptists are. We are thorough and Sometimes slow, but it's sometimes good as well. And we are today going to look at the entire message of the book. So we're going to look at one sentence, uh, my one sentence summary of the entire book together. And so, but we are going to read a lot of places in Ephesians. So please, I hope you have quick fingers um, to, to, to page to the different sections. And I hope that as we look at this, this one paragraph of what the book of Ephesians is, that you will see it for yourself in the text. And also that that will be a helpful way to see the entire book as a whole. So Stuart Olliot, I hope I pronounced that correctly, in his commentary, he, he writes this about the book of Ephesians. He says, when a Christian begins to understand Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, something wonderful happens to his spiritual life. Realizing how rich he is in Christ, he becomes filled with thankfulness and joy. He never envies non-Christians ever again. I want to read that last that sentence again. He never envies non-Christians ever again. He sees what it means to live as a Christian in today's world. He becomes stable in his doctrinal understanding. In short, Ephesians produces exactly the sort of Christians we most need. End quote. And this description is what I have personally felt in my preparation for this, this book um, as I was reading through Ephesians almost on a daily basis. At the end of this, at the end of, our, of this book, when you read it through, I felt this overwhelming thankfulness to God. I felt unworthy of the rich blessings that God has just given to me in Christ. I felt unworthy of that. I left the book with a bigger view of my life in God's grand plan for the, for his, for the history of the world. And that is why I pray, I pray that for us. I pray that God might, that that might be the effect on your heart, that you will leave this book feeling very small and filled with thankfulness to God for what he has done for us in his son. I pray as we study this great letter together that our hearts might be enlarged and strengthened to know the height, the breadth, the, the depth, and the, the width of the love of Jesus, of how much he really, really loves his people. I also think that this is exactly the sort of book we need to study in a year like 2020 and 2021, this whole season. Someone in our church um, in Clarkstorp once said this to me. He says, there are so many lies. There are so many voices. There are so many opinions. There's so, many, so much confusion at the time that we're living in. What we need is God's word. And I agree. What you and I need most is not new speculations and new theories and new conspiracy about how this happened and why this happened Constantly pulling our eyes to this evil and corrupt and confusing world. What you and I need is a rock under our feet to stand upon. What we need is truth that will always be the same whether we are in a pandemic or not. That will always be the rock of our feet. What we need is Ephesians. For this book, like few other books in the Bible, will constantly draw your eyes to eternity. This is one of those books. Paul is in prison when he's writing this, but his heart is dwelling in eternity. And that's what he wants for us. We're living on this little 2021 timeline, okay, of eternity. And 
Paul wants us, God wants us to lift up our eyes off of our little 2021 into eternity and view God's grand plan for everything. He wants to show us the glories of our inheritance, where you are going, your place in the church, and how to live out your Christian identity in this fallen world. So one way, you, one picture you can have in your mind as we come to the book of Ephesians, it's like standing on a mountain range where in front of you, there's just endless mountain ranges. So imagine standing on the top of this mountain. As you look, you don't see an end to all the mountains in front of you, all drawing your breath away. That is how Ephesians is. Ephesians wants you to stand on the top of the mountain of God's blessings, of how much he loves you, of how much he has blessed you in Christ, in the heavenly places, so that you will live worthy for him in the earthly places. So he wants to draw your eyes to the heavenly places so that you live worthy in the earthly places. So this afternoon, we'll look at this book as a whole. I will not in this message address like the background of the book, the city of Ephesus. I know um, some preachers like to do that, like give a lot of detailed background information, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to rather focus on the main message, the, the content of the book and what Paul is trying to tell us to the book. And I believe, believe me, this was difficult to do, to try to summarize the whole book in one sentence. It was, it was really a wrestling match. Um, but as I was looking at all the key themes and the key words, here is my one, my attempt. I just want to say this attempt uh, might not even be the best, the best attempt at this summary. Um, but here is my attempt of what is the whole book about in one sentence. Here's the message of Ephesians. That the triune God had an eternal plan to have and bless the church from both Jew and Gentile and, un and to unite them to his son and to one another by grace to the praise of his glory forever and ever. And that's going to be the outline as well. We're just going to look at those phrases, phrase by phrase. Let's unpack this sentence. So number one, the one feature of this book is that we see God as the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All of them working together to save us, working together to accomplish his eternal plan. Notice, for example, the very opening of the, of the book. Look at verses 3 to 4 of chapter 1. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So verse 3, up until verse 6, talks about God the Father. And then verse 7, in Him we have redemption through His blood. Now it's shifted to God the Son. And then verse um, 12, uh, 13, 13 and 14, In Him you were also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Straight after this, Paul prays for the church. Notice again this Trinitarian language in chapter 1, verse 17. 1, verse 17, Paul prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. God the Father, the Father of Jesus, gives the spirit. You see, so Father, Son, and Spirit. You can't miss it. All, all the time working together to, to save us. Look at chapter 2, verse 19. Chapter 2, verse 19 to 22. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Look at chapter 3, verse 14. As well, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, 
from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts. Do you get the picture? Now, there are others, there are more, but let me give you one more, okay? Chapter 5. Look at chapter 5, verse 18 to 21. It says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So right throughout this book, we see that it's not just the Father or the Son or the Spirit, but the three persons together planning, choosing, adopting, redeeming, sealing, filling His church so that He might be glorified and we might be holy and blameless before Him. So Christian theology is always Trinitarian theology. One God existing in three persons, all co-equal with different roles within the Trinity. So the second part of our sentence says the triune God had an eternal plan. Had an eternal plan. There's another key theme of this entire book. The theme is that the church, you and me, was not an afterthought of God. It wasn't the plan B after Israel has felt. It wasn't like Adam and Eve sinned and suddenly God says, oh no, my plan. Let me make a new plan, try to get Israel. Oh no, my plan. Israel failed. Let me get the church quickly. No, that is false. That is not the God of the Bible. Notice chapter 1, verse 4. It says, Even as God chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, before the foundation of... Look at verse 7 to 10. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. God's plan is to unite all things in Christ. That was the eternal plan. And look at chapter 3, verse 8 to 12 as well. Paul says, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. And then verse 11, this was according to the eternal purposes, purpose that he has realized or accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now this is amazing. I want you to try to come with me and imagine this. Come with me before there was anything. Come with me back before there were, it were any trees, no sunshine, no moon, no stars, no animals, no world, no galaxies, nothing. There was only God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, enjoying perfect and full fellowship with one another. And right at the start, before he even started to create the world or anything in it, he had the church in mind. The church, the wife of Jesus, the bride of Christ, already in his mind before he made Adam and Eve. He had a people in mind. He had a bribe, a bride in mind from every tongue, tribe, and nation to worship the lamb that was slain. So if you could draw a timeline that begins from eternity and crosses 2021 and stretches all the way further into eternity, that little dot where we are now in, that 2021, 
where you and I live, was in God's mind before he made anything. He already knew you'll be sitting here listening to this sermon. (laughs) Now that's both mind-blowing and encouraging. Heritage, Baptist Church, Portrait Room, our little 16 members, Lord willing, 17 members when Gerard comes in, okay? (laughs) Or maybe some of you as well, is not an afterthought of God. It wasn't his afterthought. It wasn't a mistake. We are not just some small, forgotten little church. We are part of in God's eternal plan to be his church. And that's how this book is really meant to lift up your eyes away from this little world into eternity. Because God had, the triune God had an eternal plan. And which leads us to our third point. Naturally, the triune God had an eternal plan specifically to have and to bless the church. So, the, f- the second point I mentioned was just that it was eternal, but now specifically it was to have the church. In chapter 1, verse 3, we see this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us. God has blessed us in Christ. And chapter 2, verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So God's intention was to have and to bless his church, to show unending kindness to us forever and ever, so that we will praise him. And again, that was the plan all along in chapter 3, verse 10 and 11, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known, and this was according to the eternal purpose. So at the end of chapter 3, verse 21, to him be glory in the church. So you see how this book is really focused on the church, on what the church is. Right at the start, when God created Adam and Eve, he instituted marriage. Marriage was one of those things that God made before there was any sin, before there was anything wrong with the world. And Paul says... Marriage is a picture of what? Chapter 5, okay? Look at chapter 5, verse 31 to 32. Paul quotes Genesis 2, and he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church, but, but God instituted marriage before there was any sin, before there was anything wrong, And already that was a picture of what Jesus is going to do and the relationship between Jesus and his bride. So marriage is a picture, a parable, a living illustration of this love relationship between Jesus and his church. And that was always God's intention, to pattern marriage based on the relationship between Jesus and his church. So we learn here that the church is not some kind of irrelevant organization which the world wants, wants us to believe, some kind of irrelevant you know, stuck in the past history thing. But the church is where history is going. That's the, that's the plan. The church is the plan. So what, again, what an amazing blessing to enjoy and privilege to be part of a small little local church, which is part of the grand plan of God's universal church to gather all people for himself. Fourthly, the triune God had an eternal plan to have and bless the church from both Jew and Gentile. And this was the amazing plan to have a people, a bride, 
a church from every types of people, every language, every tribe, tongue, and nation to worship and enjoy the Son. In chapter 3, verse 4 to 6, Paul says, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So not just for one group, not just Jew, not just white, not just black, not just Indian, not just whatever nationality you want to put in there. It was of Jew and Gentile. Fifthly, the triune God had an eternal plan to have and bless the church from both Jew and Gentile and to unite them to his son. This concept is one of the key concepts of our unity. Being one is a repeated theme. And I want to argue that that is unity is the key to having true peace. Think about it. What the human heart is longing for is to be truly united and one. One with God, one with their husband and their wife, one with their family, one with the church, one with the people around them. If there were perfect unity in our world, there would be no wars, there would be no arguments, there would be no reasons to fight, and there would be peace if we were truly one. But it's precisely because there is disunity between people, between marriages, between churches, that we don't have peace. We don't experience it, but we experience trouble. And God's plan was that all along to have perfect peace by uniting us to his son. Jesus is the key to true unity, to true peace. Look at chapter 1, verse 9 and 10 again. So here's the mystery of his will. He says, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. And chapter 2, verse 14, therefore states, for Jesus, he himself is our peace. He is our peace. Christ doesn't just give peace. He is our peace. He is the reason there can be peace. Only by our common faith in him, our union with him, can we as two enemies become one. And we see that theme of unity and oneness from the beginning until the end of the Bible. God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are three, yet they are one God. And then they created man in their own image. And what did God say to Adam and Eve? He made Adam and Eve. Man shall leave his father and his mother, and they shall become one flesh. That was God's plan for marriage, to be completely one in finances, raising their children, in everything, to be, unit, to have, to be a unity. And now Jesus comes, and he wants the church to be one in him even now on earth. And then when Jesus comes back, the, when he makes everything new, everything will be one and united. He will restore the physical creation, our bodies and all of us together to be one in him. And then, only then, will there be world peace when Jesus comes. But until then, we can have a preview of that in the church, to be one with one another. So God's plan was to unite all things in him, which leads naturally to our second, the, the one after that, not just to unite him to his son, but also to unite them, us, to one another. So our vertical reconciliation, our reconciliation to God, is the key to our horizontal reconciliation with one another. So if you have a um, bitter heart, if you have a people problem, you have a God problem. If you cannot forgive people, it's because you, you don't understand the grace and the mercy and the unlimited 
love of God for you. That's where the issue is. So the vertical reconciliation of God is the key to our horizontal uh, reconciliation. Only in Jesus can racism end. Only in Jesus can xenophobia end. Only in Jesus can bitterness and unforgiveness end. Because he is the key to unite us to one another. And that's why we said he himself is our peace. He makes the two one new man. Now this is, this is an amazing part of the book of Ephesians. Chapter 1 to 3 shows our position in Christ and the blessings we have in the heavenly places. So chapter 1 to 3 is just what God has done. And then from chapters 4 to 6, Paul starts to show us how to walk worthy of this calling in the earthly places. How to then live like what God has done. And the very first thing he commands us of how we are to live worthy is to be one with one another. Is to bear with one another. That's, by the way, why church is difficult. Like, why would the command be there, bear with one another, if everybody was just bearable, <laughs> was just wonderfully like you in all respects? Look at chapter 4, verse 1. It says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which he has called you, with all humility and gentleness, with patience. You need patience, okay? Bearing with one another in love eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So that's the first way you walk worthy, is by pursuing unity, by bearing with one another, forgiving one another, being patient with one another, all those one another commands. In other words, we should be one, with one another because we are already one in Christ. This is who we are. It's already true of us. We are already one. So now act it out, live it out in your daily life. That's what Paul says, walk worthy now of this calling. That's why we should pursue forgiveness, kindness, peace, and grace because we are already that in Christ. So get this, when people look at us, the church, that should give them a preview of heaven, a preview of how that perfect unity will be when every tribe and every tongue and every nation will be one to worship the one God through his son by the power of the Holy Spirit. So they must see that preview in us. The church is supposed to be the foretaste, the movie trailer of what God is going to do one day as well. People from different backgrounds, different languages, different skin colors, worshiping together the same God through Jesus. And remember what Jesus said in John 13, verse 35. He says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. How? If you have love for one another. If you have love. Love is the key to unity. The same is true of the family. From Ephesians 5, verse 18 to chapter 6, verse 4, Paul shows how our families are supposed to be one. Um, wives submitting to their husbands, husbands passionately loving, sacrificing for their wives, children submitting to their parents, parents, fathers, especially fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. I've noticed that's a father thing <laughs> in my, my parenting as well. But this is how you are now one. Be one in your family. Be one in your marriage. Be one in your parenting. This is God's design. So this is God's plan to have one church who, who are filled with families that are a preview of what it's going to be like when Jesus comes again. 
Now think with me, do you now understand why it's so hard to be church? Why it's so hard to go to church and to become this one body? I mean, it's already like marriage is a good, really a good illustration. Like you, you come together as husband and wife, you are completely different, completely different backgrounds, parents, edu like, okay, not, not always educated, but you know what I mean? I'm trying to, to make a point here, okay? And now suddenly, like, but my dad always did this and my mother always did this. And now suddenly you have to become one and it feels like a block trying to fit into a circle square. Or <laughs> a circle square, that doesn't exist. But, and it's just frustrating, right? <laughs> but it's the same with the church. Now we come, it's, it's like multiply that in a macro scale. And we are the church. We're coming from, like there's, a, there's people from high paying jobs to low paying jobs to you know, men, women, different cultures, and now we're trying to have this unity that, is, that seems impossible to have. And that's why it's so hard to be the church because, and that's why the devil will target the church. He will target marriages, number one, and he will target the church, the unity of marriages and the unity of the church. If you can do that, all the previews are gone. If husband and wife divorce, if the church splits, argue, unforgiving, then the, the world has nothing left. The world has nothing to look at and say, wow, look at that marriage. Wow, look at this church. How can these people love each other? It doesn't make sense. Look at, wow, look how one they are. Because that, that's why the devil, if he can just do that, destroy our unity, he destroys our witness, our light, our salt. And that's why the book of Ephesians closes with what? Spiritual warfare. It's about... Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. We are not the issue, okay? It is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Our war is against Satan. Interesting as well, Ephesians 4 says, do not be, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And then immediately says, give no opportunity to the devil. Where does the devil get his greatest opportunity to destroy our marriages, our families, and our churches? It's through anger, bitterness, unforgiveness. And we conquer the devil by picking up the truth of God's word, standing in the salvation, taking up the full armor of God, refusing to believe the lies of the devil, taking up the sword of the spirit, and standing in the salvation that God has already accomplished for us. So to unite us to Christ and to unite us to one another. That's God's eternal plan. So the last few phrases of our sentence, it says, how, how are we part of this great blessing? How do we become part of this amazing work? It says, the triune God had an eternal plan to have and bless the church from both Jew and Gentile and unite them to his son and to one another by grace. How do you get these blessings? How do, you, how do you become part of the family? How are you partaker of the grand plan of God to save and to bless the world in His Son? How do you have a share in the rich inheritance that will be yours forever and ever? What must we do? What must you do? How do you get part of this? Answer, grace. God doesn't give you these blessings by what you've done or what you do or by your merits, but by the merit of his son, by grace alone through faith. And that's where we get the famous verses, Ephesians 2 verse 8 to 10. 
for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before and that we should walk in them. We're not saved by works, but we are prepared for good works. The order is important. And that's why we will praise God. Salvation from beginning to end is from God, through God, and for God. So who gets all the glory? He does for our salvation. We get the joy, we get the salvation, and he gets the glory. Again, that's the reason. To the praise of his glory forever and ever. Three times in Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1 verse 6. To the praise of his glorious grace. Look at verse 12 so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Look at verse 14. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Chapter 3, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Everything's about God. Everything is about Jesus. Everything is about the Holy Spirit. Everything is about the triune God saving sinners by nothing they do and by everything he does so that he gets all the glory. And that's why we read in chapter 2 verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. We will praise God forever because he will just never stop loving us, never stop showing us the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness. Brother, this is the message of the book of Ephesians. The triune God had an eternal plan to have and bless the church from both Jew and Gentile to unite them to his son and to one another by grace to the praise of his glory forever and ever. So beloved, look up. See God on his throne, working all things according to the counsel of his will. See God's plan for you, for us, as a church, as heritage. See how God is working in us to make us one. And I want to say I'm already seeing that in many of you. And it's so beautiful to see how we are becoming one and increasingly one. Stand in awe of the fact that God has given you everything by nothing you did as a gift of grace. Then, as you consider this grand eternal plan, now live it out in your daily life. Live it out in your relationships, in your marriage, in your parenting, in your work, in your love and forgiveness and your kindness and your mercy towards other people, that people around us might see and believe that God sent Jesus into the world to save sinners. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Let's just use this time to respond to God in prayer. Let's just use a few minutes of silent prayer. Let's pray to him.
Father, you are the eternal God who had an eternal plan to have and bless your church, the bride of Christ, to the praise of your glory by Christ forever and ever. Lord, we are part of that plan. If we are saved, if we, are, if we have repented of our sins and put our trust in Jesus, we too are united. We are in him. We are one with Christ, the one we love, the one who has loved us first. Lord, we repent of our individualism, repent of the idea that it's about me and God and, and that's it. Lord, you are making, you have a grand plan. It's not just between me and you, it's between us and you. It's our Father in heaven. You are making a church and that church is already being previewed in the local church, Lord. And thank you that you have started a work here in, in Poch. Thank you for this church, Lord. We, we praise you. I pray that we would be holy, that we would hate our sin and that we would walk worthy of our calling by our unity, by pursuing that unity with one another, refusing to let the sun set over our anger, refusing to not forgive and not pursue that reconciliation with one another because and based upon the reconciliation with you. Lord, please remind us again of the rich blessings that you have given us in Christ and in him alone. Oh Lord, I pray for those who are here, who are not part of any church, who are maybe wandering Please, Lord, direct them, direct them and guide them to a church where they can plug in, where they can be a body using their gifts to serve you and to serve one another, where we can grow together into our head, the Lord Jesus. So, Lord, thank you for this, this book, and I pray that we would study it faithfully, and we would apply it to our lives, and we would give you all the glory for your great plan and work. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.